All right, so we are up to the, well, I think, the big moment in James. Uh, we've been working on this series for a few weeks now. And look, we're a number of us in the teaching team, um, for those who don't know, you know, people like Elizabeth and Jordan, it's, it's been very much on our heart lately that we would see the gospel preached in pretty much every sermon. We wanted to make sure we're conveying the gospel. And what's beautiful about this passage is we, we've been going through the book of James, it's full of wisdom, a lot of correction, um, but at this point is where it gets really down to the most important issue you're ever going to deal with in life, which is your salvation. What's these wrong thoughts about the gospel that pervade um, this, our current thinking? Certainly what James was challenging was an issue at the time, and it's certainly an issue now. People will tell you things that he is challenging today. And so we want to make sure we capture that today. And so it's my great pleasure um, that we can bring the gospel into that. So this is going to be a gospel presentation with James inserted in the middle to talk about, I guess, that key pivot point in the gospel message, which we often, we don't even get past. Um, and I believe it's very important. So we're going to get started, which means, for that reason, I'm not going to start with the text. We're going to get to it at the, at the key point when it goes into the, uh, at that kind of pivot point within the gospel. But let's just talk very briefly about the gospel so we're all very clear, because I want everyone here, and I don't care who you are, I don't care what your confession has been, it's my great aim today is that you would walk away from here knowing if indeed you are saved, and not to have some false assurance of that idea. Because yeah, this is the most important question that you could ever, ever answer or ask of yourself. So if we start, I'm here with a group of relatively mature believers, so where would we start any gospel presentation? What's the... Numero uno, point number one. Does anyone want to offer it? Or are they worried they're going to get their head chewed off? <laughs> Sorry? Creation. creation, yes. That's right. And then what happens to creation? So we, we say, God, you are creator, and then something happens. Then you know, we are created, we are perfect, and then something terrible happens. All right, and that is the hallmark of humanity. It's our very nature that we always do this. Uh, who of you remembers here the Acts series? Went through first got a good chunk of this year, and we were just going through sermon after sermon. What I love about that is you're hearing lots of very short sermons in that book of how do how do the disciples becoming apostles preach the gospel, and it's there's a lot of commonality. They pretty much always start um, with a, that combination of creation and man's fall, and it gets really personal. I'm thinking of Acts two, the very first one that Peter preached, and his essential starting argument was you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross you of all people and we're told that it cut them to the heart that message a couple of chapters later he's preaching before the rulers after having healed a man and he's saying the stone which was rejected by you the builders has become the chief cornerstone he was telling them you have rejected the christ you have sinned your sins put in there. When you get to someone like Stephen in chapter 7, pretty much his entire sermon is nothing but this. He goes through the entire history of Israel, explaining and showing how they've constantly rejected God's prophets, God's workings, and he basically lays it all at their feet and says, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Just like your fathers are, so are you. So it's a very poignant message that we start the gospel with. And look, I could go scripture after scripture on this, but I'm understanding or hoping that, that many of us are very familiar with this concept that we are fundamentally at fault. And that is actually the starting point, is an acknowledgement. And 
no surprise the world hates this particular message because it's at total odds with what the world says about our state. We would, if we get our movies and, and you know, what, just the amount of, you know, stuff that the children are watching these days and everything's just about the inner you, how it's so good and we just need to let it come out. So the inner us is fundamentally flawed according to the gospel. And that is our starting point. And then we move on. In fact, I'm just going to put this up here in, in six very simple points. I didn't realise it would be quite so small up there. But we literally just talked at the beginning, our state. This is where we start. And this message is essentially going to be six relatively simple points. All right. So point two is God has an answer to this. And I call it the fundamental problem that God had, which is that he is just and just, and, and he will judge rightly. So our sin has to have consequences and yet he's got this dilemma because he loves us. He tells us he loves us. Even while we are like this, even though we've utterly rejected him, he loves us. Who knows that passage, John 3.16? It's such a well-known verse, and I'll quote it for you, for God so loved the world. That's his starting point. He loved us, so he gave us an answer. And what is that answer? It is Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. He sent his own son to pay the price of our sins. He was going to let justice be met, but at the same time, he was going to provide a way for us. So he would basically pay the consequence or the price of our own sins. And that's such a beautiful thing. And if I go back to some of those sermons we talked about in Acts at the beginning, it's very, very similar. It, um, I think Peter said... You know, you have crucified him. But then he says in literally the sentence after, but God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, our Saviour. Our sins put him on the cross, and yet this same man is our Saviour. And again, when he said he is the stone rejected by you, God has made him the chief cornerstone. So Jesus has been supplied as our answer. So if you want to be saved... You only need look to one very simple thing, and that is Jesus, our Saviour. But then one quick question comes up, which is, okay, oh, I get that, okay, but if Jesus paid the price for sin, are we not all just saved? We're just all universally saved, and he paid the price for sin, so that's all there is to it. And we know clearly the Gospel is not that, because Jesus himself said, if you don't believe, you're condemned already. So there was a little prerequisite in there which is in order to participate in this salvation, it requires our belief. And there's this word that we use, we call it believe, we call it faith. In fact, sometimes we even call it repent, and it's worth just mentioning this briefly, because when you go through all these gospel presentations in Acts, they're talking about repent or believe. Sometimes I say repent and believe, sometimes I just say repent, sometimes I just say believe. Which one is it? Right? The reality is they're all very, very similar sides of the same thing. And we think repent, the actual word used in the Greek there is much more literally to change one's mind, to change your thinking. It's literally to, I thought this way, I now think differently. And we understand there's a lot more involved and we're going to explore that a little bit today. But at its root, it's a very much a, I think differently. I once thought this was okay. I now see myself as a sinner. I am changing my mind. So Peter, in his first sermon, said, repent and be baptised. Whereas the Philippian jailer, if we think of that example in Acts where Paul preached to him afterwards, he just said, believe you with all your household and be baptised and you will be saved. So belief is very similar. It's this idea that I now understand. There's a, there's a massive aspect of the mind. This I understand the gospel and I believe it. 
And the beautiful thing is that this idea of just belief, it just seems so simple. I just need to believe the words and suddenly Jesus' punishment is satisfactory for me. I am saved. This was pointed out throughout the entire of the Old Testament. We're going to explore that a bit more, but just a couple of verses. Habakkuk said a, a very prominent one, which is quoted by Paul. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. We're going to talk a little bit later about how Abraham saw that. And just to make it very clear, this is the message throughout, you know, whether you talk through large sections of Paul's letters or Jesus himself, he's saying whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The purchase of your salvation is through this, believing. And it is such a beautiful thing. In fact, you can almost say it's like magic, can't you? This one simple thing would give us salvation. And in fact, if you think of the prophet Joel, it's just a simple idea. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I just call on his name and voila, I am saved. Did anyone ever ask why was it so simple? Why faith of all things? You know, why would that commend us to God? And we actually do actually get given a reason for that, by the way. And um, it comes, Paul's very big on this, uh, Ephesians 2, Romans 4. says, for this reason it is by faith, in order that it might be in accordance with grace. God wanted us to know it wasn't ourselves. He takes the simplicity of belief and says, on that basis, I'm going to credit righteousness to you. It's not something you have done that earns your place in his kingdom. It's that God has given you a gift. To believe is literally to receive a gift from God, which is the gift of salvation. So we say that, along with Paul, Ephesians 2, we are saved by faith alone. and We don't even add anything to it. It's literally just our belief. So that's all straightforward. We started with our sin. Jesus paid the price of our sin, and in order to be saved, we believe. Have I finished the gospel at this point? Now, a lot of messages actually did finish at this point. Let's be quite clear. Even in Acts, they get to this point, and this is where the gospel is finished. But James is going to intersect himself at this very point, and we're about halfway through this because we're roughly, in my view, halfway through the full gospel because there's a very important point that once we get to faith, it's understanding, well, what is this faith? We get this idea that it's just to believe. I now understand what God has said, and I believe it. And that is all that I need to know. But is it all I need to know? And this is where James comes in. Look, I can't really stress the importance of this particular point enough. I kind of was thinking of an analogy the other day. Because if you stopped here, and I know people who stop here. I know people who get on the street maybe or in, in talking to people and presenting the gospel. Just saying, you just need to just say the words. Just say, the, just say this prayer and you will be saved. And yet what we're going to hit, find here is that it's not actually the case. It's a bit like if you saw this family in a burning building, one of those ones in Melbourne that are shaking and started to burn, and you had the, the schema of the building in front. You knew how they could get out. And you give them a call and say, look, make your way down, get your way out. And they, they get their way down. They're in the basement. Um, and it's looking pretty good now. The basement, you know, the flames are all up higher. It's looking pretty good. And it, they've got to get their way outside. And at that point, it's a little bit difficult. And you go, look, actually, don't worry. In the basement, I understand uh, that this basement has got steel girders. And I'm pretty sure that when the flames, even though the flames are hot, they're not hot enough to melt those steel girders. So you guys are saved. You are saved in that basement. No need to make your way out into the, into the grounds outside. 
And of course, what will happen is that they will perish, because we know that everything will crumple around them, and they, they're consumed. And we're going to stop at faith, at this basic idea of it's just belief, and we're going to tell people even worse, you are saved. You just said, you said a prayer, you are saved, and yet they're not. It's going to be like just giving them that false assurance inside that building. They will perish. And it would be worse than if you hadn't told them anything at all because they might have been able to jump a window or do anything except you had given them this false idea that they were actually saved. So James is intersecting himself at this point in the message and going, no, it's not any kind of faith. And this isn't unique to James, but it is the subject of our text today. And so this is where we're going to go through. It is not any kind of faith. It is a certain kind of faith. What kind of faith is it? A saving faith. So let's pick up from James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And this is the fundamental idea. We said something simple. I just need to believe to be saved. And yet all of a sudden it's turned around. So no, if it has no works, it's dead. And he says, even so faith, just a couple of verses later, even so faith, if it has no works, it's dead being by itself. It needs to be attached to something. So that's problem number one that he addresses, that Faith actually has works, and we're going to unpack that a little bit in just a moment. The second thing that he challenges is it's not mere mental assent. It's not mere understanding these things. So in James chapter 2, verse 19, and if you've got that in front of you, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. And let's be very clear, you do do well. If you believe the gospel and or understand it, the gospel, you do do well. But James says the demons also believe and shudder. That in itself is not going to be enough to save you. So merely understanding, merely quoting or acknowledging these truths is not bad, but it's insufficient. It's not going to get you saved. And so James says, are you willing to recognise, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He comes back to that same point. What's a true kind of faith? It's a faith that has works. And my wife asked me a good question the other day, talking through this. I said, well, what kind of works is he talking about? Um, James does mention a couple of examples when he's talking about Abraham's faith and he's talking about, um, uh, I forget the lady's name now, in Jericho, Rahab, thank you. Um, and they're examples, but let's just ponder that question really briefly. I think there's a, a couple of different kinds that we can talk about here. Um, one is repentance. Often when Paul was preaching in, in Acts, he would say that he was, when he was preaching the gospel, he was preaching that they should repent, that people should repent and turn to God and perform deeds or works appropriate to repentance. So one of the great things, if you do understand the gospel truly and you have a, a, a real faith, it changes your understanding of sin. Okay? So some of your works will indicate that you now see sin very differently. It's no longer, I don't really care, oh, I did some bad, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. These things you care about them greatly now. You care that you don't continue to do them greatly. So some of these works are works of repentance, works that indicate a new understanding, a new attitude towards sin. We're also told that we have new character. We think about in Galatians where uh, Paul's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, he'll talk about the character this, this entails, that, that fundamental change. That if we walk in the Spirit, not only will we not do those things we used to do, uh, but we will have qualities such as love and joy. Um, and in fact, he talks about, uh, in, in Galatians 5, he says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. So he's talking about character. So you have good character, you have repentance, and also 
obedience, and that's the one that you really see in the story of Abraham, which again we'll go into in detail in just a second. But fundamentally we are obedient to what God says and what he tells us to do. So these are the kinds of works we're talking about. Obedience and faith, character and love in faith, repentance and a different attitude towards sin. These are going to be three marks of the works of someone who's been truly saved. So at this point we need to ask the question, you know, there's, there's, there's a little bit of friction, if you will, perceived friction between what Paul said when he was talking about well, we're only saved by faith alone to prove that it was not our works, to prove it wasn't of ourselves, and yet now we're told we must have works in order to be saved or to be justified, even in, in James' language. The reality is they are talking about different things. They're, they're actually using very similar language, but they are, I believe, talking about different things when they talk of justification. But where this all comes together is in understanding another big piece of the gospel, which isn't in James, so we're just going to briefly move into that. We talk about fundamentally how does one have these kinds of works? Is true faith the kind of faith where you just go, I just work really hard to have those kind of qualities, to have those kind of attitudes towards sin, and that will commend me unto God? It's not the way that we are told in Scripture that actually happens. On the contrary, we're told as our starting point that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not alive to God. We are dead people. And the change that's required for us to have good works is something fundamental to us. And I'm going to call it here a new heart. I love there's a, a prophecy um, in Ezekiel. And it was actually repeated twice in different parts, essentially saying the same things, where he prophesies, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone. See, our fundamental nature is so opposed to God that the kind of works you're talking about here are not something that are just going to come naturally. In fact, they won't come at all. So the only way that they're going to come is through a fundamental change inside of you. And this is a concept called regeneration, rebirth. Um, it comes from these ideas that we're given a new heart, we're given God's spirit. It's not just, I'm going to add some works onto this otherwise flesh. It's a fundamental change in us. That if we are going to be saved, God changes us from the inside out. Does anyone remember Jesus in John chapter 3? He had this very wise fellow from amongst the, um, the Pharisees. Nicodemus was his name. Come and have a little quiet chat on the balcony and say, Teacher, what, what must we do? And Jesus said, Very truly, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I mean, a lot of you might remember Nicodemus was incredulous at this idea, how can I enter my mother's womb again and, and be born again? He said, no, no, not that kind of birth. We must be born again of water and of spirit, he says. And this is fundamental to the nature that if we're going to understand or reconcile what James is saying with other teachings, and if we're going to understand the true gospel, it is that we must be born again. And this kind of terminology repeats itself over and over. Um, in Titus, in fact, it was one of the first times a preacher was on Titus, and it had this, um, God saved us not by works done by us in righteousness, it's not by works, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, by this change that he works within us. In 2 Corinthians, we talk of this idea of a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, died, the behold, the new has come. So if we're going to understand the gospel, we're going to understand faith, not only are we talking about a belief, we're talking about a kind of belief that accompanies and is combined with this idea of a new birth. I am fundamentally changed. And so this becomes the source of the works. Jesus had this most beautiful analogy, and I can't top it, so I'm going to use it. 
All right. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he talks of fruit. He says, if you were my disciples, you're going to bear much fruit. And he even tells you how it's going to happen. He says, it's because you abide in him. He is the vine. So if you think of a plant, all right, and the analogy we take is that we like branches put into the plant. And we, that analogy is used by Paul elsewhere as well. We like a branch put into this vine and from which the life of the vine comes through this branch and you're able to produce fruit. Now, would you look at a vine, look at its fruit and go, because it has fruit, that's why it lives? Does it live because it has fruit? That's kind of ridiculous. No, it has fruit because it lives. Right? And in the same way, when we're talking of our works, we don't justify ourselves before God because of these works. We don't live because of these works. He brings us to life in him. And through his life, the works outflow. It's a simple enough concept, but it's still amazing how it can be a struggle to fully grasp it. We are not alive because of the fruit, but the fruit is there because we are alive in him. And for that same reason, we don't boast against the vine. We don't go, look at my fruit. I am so deserving of this life of which you now give me. That would be ridiculous. The vine is the one giving him the life and giving us the life. So this is not something we do on our own. This is a new heart that we are given. And this is a critical point. It's amazing how often this is missed from our preaching this idea of a new heart. If you're going to be truly saved, it's not that I've just believed or I've had to do something. It's fundamentally God changes me. It is a work of God. So we're born not of the will of man, but of the will of God. It's a work of God within us that's required. When that happens, then you fulfil righteousness and then you fulfil what James is talking about here as well. So at the very final point, if you are truly saved, if you've had this born-again experience, then you will fulfil righteousness. It is inevitable. Jesus said at the end of his analogy, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It is the proof. If we look to what James said specifically, and this is where I just want to look at that example of Abraham very briefly. Abraham started at this very simple point. It's, it's, we're told... And I'm just going to start, how, how many people know here when there's a verse that we often quote in relation to Abraham? It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Does anyone know when in his life that happened? And if we give a really rough idea of his life, he was relatively old when God first spoke to him and said, leave the land of Ur and go to some place. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you later, literally. I'll tell you later. But just head out and I'll show you this place. And he, and he went. And he was quite late in life. He then had um, some experiences with Lot because they were getting quite wealthy and he separated with Lot and he, he had an encounter with a priest of Salem. And then at some point God's come to him and said, because you've believed, and not even because you believe, my promise to you is that your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. And this man, Abraham, had no children. So it's quite a startling promise. You're going to have children like the stars of heaven. And he's given this promise. Later down the track, he has Isaac born and then some years later God asks him to kill this Isaac. He says, I don't want you to value him more than me. I literally want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. So these are some pretty momentous occasions. Does anyone know when this statement though that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness actually occurred? Sorry? When he was 80 years old. So it was actually, he'd just had an encounter with the priest of Salem. He'd actually rescued his brother or his nephew Lot um, from several kings by literally a few hundred of his own men against a number of kings and had saved him. 
and uh, this priest of Salem comes and blesses him and he gives him a, a tithe and at the end God comes to Abraham and says like the stars that you see so shall your descendants be and at that point we're told Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness and this is just an amazing thing because at that point Paul's using, Paul uses the argument of this very verse says it's credited to him he is righteous not because he's was righteous per se it was credited to him on account of his faith and the credit was proof that it wasn't even on his work it's credited literally by grace that's that's paul's argument but then the beautiful thing is that james takes this same example and he says look what happened later all right so the the story with isaac to be clear is that later on God fulfills his promise by giving him a son, Isaac, and it's an absolute miracle. He's 100 years old at the time, so it is an absolute miracle. And then after that, and we don't exactly know how old he was, it's between 5 and 37 years, so it's just a little range, but at some stage, um, he's told, go and sacrifice your son to me. And he does that, and that is an ultimate work of obedience and faith, isn't it, combined? And James tells us, see this work, it's proving his faith. His faith was made complete. And we know this is t- at least 20 years since he was given that promise was said. And then James makes the startling statement and says, so he fulfilled that verse. His actual act of taking Isaac there fulfilled the earlier promise of God, which is that because you have believed is credited to you as righteousness. And that is inevitable that if you are born again, if you have a saving faith, you are going to fulfill righteousness and over the course of your life there will be fruit to prove it and so you will fulfill the verse not just because the righteousness is credited to you but you will actually live it out in your own life and that's what james is saying you will fulfill righteousness and that is you know complemented with so many verses from uh, paul and the others i'm thinking ephesians even that verse where he talks about you're saved by grace through faith then he talks about these works which you've been foreordained to walk into foreordained it's inevitable that if you are truly saved you'll walk into these good works so it's simple enough this is the gospel and we just quickly go through it we know that we are sinners and that God has provided a means for us to be saved in Jesus. And all we have to do is believe. But the nature of that believing is such that unless God works a change in us and gives us a new heart, it was never saving faith in the first place. We actually need to receive something from him to be saved. And that is his spirit. And in so doing, we will walk out and fulfil his righteousness here on the earth. Let's be very clear on that. And what I want to ask is, as a final note, as we just kind of reflect on that passage, and particularly James. James, in the previous chapter, used an analogy of the mirror. Said, you know, we look into the, the whole law of God and then are not changed by it. It's like looking in a mirror and forgetting what you are. So I want to look in a mirror today and go, do we see this in our lives? Because this is the most important question. Are you saved? I don't mean, great, you, you might declare that I believe in God and I believe in Jesus Christ, but those are, we take James literally, just words. I want to know, are you truly saved? Are you born again? Has God fundamentally changed you from the inside and out? And this is not always evident from day one. Often it is, but not always. You actually need to see it lived out. And so I'm never going to tell you, and people will come up and want to know, are you saved? So I can't tell you if you are saved. But it will become evident. It will become evident. Because fundamentally it is a work of God inside of you. And what I want to make sure today is that if there's anyone here with this idea that I believe and yet you feel like 
actually, if I reflect on it truly, I don't see any real work of God in me. Right? And I don't mean coming to church. I don't, I'm not talking about these kind. I'm talking about the kind of work where you love him, where you want to be with him, where you obey him, where you have this very different idea of sin and where your character is just being reformed and being changed into the image of Jesus Christ. If you're not seeing that, then I always ask very highly, am I saved? Let's not delude ourselves. Let's not be like people caught just before we got over the edge into salvation and perishing. I want us to be people who are truly born again. What perils we could save ourselves from, and that, I'm going to leave that with you as a question. All right. Are we truly born again? Are these works working themselves out? And as a final note, if you're kind of in that little toss-up where you're, you're not sure, just remember with these works, in that same analogy that Jesus was giving about the, the fruit of the vine, he said, abide in me. The whole point of works is that they're not something that are striven towards. They're something to naturally flow out of someone who is abiding in Jesus. So I'll leave you with that last thought. And let's just pray together, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the purity and beauty of your gospel. That you looked upon us, Lord, and you loved us. Even though we didn't deserve it, you loved us, Father. And you sent us your son, Lord, even as we sang, Jesus paid it all. I thank you for that, Father. I thank you that you have paid the price of our sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would truly believe that we would be people who are not caught up with mere words or with a a useless or futile faith, Lord, but people with a real faith, Lord. And so we ask as your children that you would give us your faith, your kingdom, your new life, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.